Well, listen, um, we're in our Impact DNA series, and let's review. It's very, very important uh, that we set the foundation right for this church, and so I'm going to go back to the first couple of weeks and let you know what we've got so far. It's going to kind of go fast, and I'm not going to explain the stuff. I'm just going to give it to you. So it's a fire hose. Some of you don't have big enough mouths. This is not going to work with the fire hose thing, but try anyway. Write this down, and if you need to get it in detail, then I gave it in the most detail last week in the Go series, or the Go message. So here it is. Impact, our purposes come from two key scriptures, Matthew chapters 22 and 28, and they're known as the Great Commandment and the Great Commission. And here's what we believe about them. We believe that a great commitment to the Great Commandment and the Great Commission will absolutely grow a great church every time. Not just saying that, hey, we love the Great Commandment. We, we realize that's the, that's the most important commandment of all of them. We, we're committed to the Great Commission, the last words Jesus said before he ascended. We're there. Well, listen, if you don't live it out, then you're not really committed to it. But if you are greatly committed to it as an individual or as a church, the world's going to know. In a short amount of time, the world's going to know. It's going to make a difference. So inside of these two key scripture passages, there's five purposes that we can extract. Here they are. Worship God. I'm going to say these. I'll say these a couple times. Witness to others. Grow in Him. Be baptized and gather with other believers. And finally, give your time, talent, and treasures. Now, here's how we remember them. That's a lot to remember. That's not really a catchy little slogan. So we've taken all five of those and we've put the letter G, uh, we've made G words out of them. The first one is glorify, and we talked about that the first week. The second one is go, and we talked about it the second week. Today we're going to talk about grow, but let me go ahead and give them all to you. Gather and give. Glorify, go, grow, gather, give. Not one of these is more important than the others. They're all five God's purposes. Well, let me take that back. One of them is a little bit more important, glorify. As you do all five of them, you obviously need to be given glory to God with your life. As you do the other four, they need to be things that point to the Lord Jesus, not to ourselves, but to him. Now, some people, believe it or not, even struggle with the five Gs. Believe it or not, if I were to go over them or ask you or walk out there and pick on someone and say, give me the five Gs, right now half of you aren't going to be able, I, I'm okay with that. doesn't hurt me. I know some of you are going to go, go give a, a glare. I don't know, what was it? No, it's just not going to be there. So here's an easier way. If you can remember, look up, look out, look in. In fact, say that with me. Look up, look out, look in. Okay, this time say it with me. Look up, look out, look in. You can remember the five Gs. You can remember the five Gs if you can just remember that. Look up is to God, right? That's glorifying. Look out is to, um, is to go out to other people. And also look in is to grow and to, get, is, and to give. So we can remember those if we just look, look up, look out, look in. If you can't remember anything else, remember that. Now, how do we carry those out last week? We talked about how do, how do you do that in a balanced, healthy way? How do you do that in a balanced, healthy way? I mean, if you were awake, what would you tell me? Which I, I think there's a lot of evidence right now that you're not. I heard you sing. Man, it was like a different church. And then I got up here, and there he is, the tranquilizer. No, I'm here. I'm going to come out there. How do, you, how do you live that out? Because look. You could say, they're all five important. So I, I can think of two ministries and glorify. I can think of 10 and give. I'm going to do them all. I'm going to do 12 ministries. Is that a healthy way to live these out? No, that's not going to work, gang, at all. That'll never work. So a healthy way that we've come up with, and then we can kind of kick out after this, is worship plus two. Worship plus two. Do you guys remember what that means or how that goes? That means when the doors of this church are open for worship, and that doesn't mean when the doors of this gym are open, because that's all week long at Weddington Middle School, but when the doors are open for church and we gather for worship, you're there. I mean, it's a priority to be with your family in corporate worship. It's not, I'm there, Pastor, if I'm having a good hair day, but if I'm not having a good hair day, I'm really not there. Listen, I'm not having a good hair day today. Some of you can see that. It's a little different. It kind of exploded on me today. I'm still here. Still here, willing to get in front. It's not, listen, is it 72 degrees and the humidity about right? Is it going to be a and I'm there. If it snows, I know in Charlotte, if there's two flakes on the ground, we panic, we cancel everything for the next year and all that. But here, it means we're there, okay? And it means that plus two means that you are in a life group, only one life group, not five life groups, and that you serve in an area. Now, we are not quite yet a church. We haven't had our grand opening. Look around, there's a lot of people here, but this is a launch. It's a launch. We're getting ready. There's some things that that I will not compromise on. There's some things that we need as a church before we launch out. Because you know what? This church is named after what we want to do. We want to make an impact. And so if we go out there sort of half-cocked, we're not ready, we're not really, it's going to take us years to get where God's called this church to be. 
So God has put on my heart that we need 400 volunteers. And listen, some of you going, well, my kids are here. One of them's six months old, the other's two. Okay, we love them, but they don't count as volunteers yet, all right? I'm talking, you got to be like at least nine, ten, eight, nine, ten years old, and you can serve at least in, with the little kids and kind of get involved here a little bit. That's full-blown volunteers serving in an area of this church. And when there's 400 and everybody's replicated and every area of ministry has backups and backups for backups, and we realize that every member is a minister in this church, we're ready to go. That might be Easter, we're thinking. It might be a little bit longer than Easter. If we don't, if we don't launch before the summer, probably be right after the summer back to school. But listen, we're having church. Raise your hand if you've been here more than two weeks. Okay, then it's kind of church, isn't it? Feels like church. Or some of you going, I'm ripped off. I've been coming here. I thought it was church. But you just said it isn't. It's church. All right? We're, going, we're definitely having church. And we have communion, Lord's Supper together every week. But we're preparing for something bigger. We're preparing for something bigger. So worship plus two. All right, so today we're going to talk about grow. The third G. This is so important. How many of you have ever had somebody in your life, and you don't have to raise your hand because this could be embarrassing, somebody in your life that you wanted to get real close to, ah, you can raise it here, I'll keep it general. Trust me. Trust me on this. How many of you ever had anybody in your life you wanted to get close to, um, but it just wasn't happening? Has that ever happened? I'll start. Yes. Okay, 10 of you will follow. The rest of you are lying. Come on. Yeah, every relationship's worked out. Some of you guys are sitting there, every girl I ever wanted, she wanted me. No, that didn't happen that way. I don't care if you're Brad Pitt. It didn't happen. Somebody turned you down somewhere. Anybody ever turned them down? I don't know. But somebody's turned you down somewhere. It's not perfect. Raise your hand again. If, if someone, okay, it could be a friend. It could be a parent. It could be a child. It could be a neighbor. You tried to get close to you. Tried to, and it just wasn't there. Raise your hand. Has that ever happened? All right. We got almost everyone. Some of you, really, really? You're 40 years old and everyone's like you. Every single person's like you. You know who I'm talking about if you're out there. Well, I've had that, and we can do things, right? We can try to force it, try to make it happen, and that's ugly, especially when it's a guy trying to force a girl to kind of trying to do all these goofy things to make her like him, and she's already made it plain to just about everyone she knows that it's not going to happen. And so he's kind of hanging out there making a fool, but you keep trying. Uh, and this is a little more sensitive. Sometimes it can be, in, you know, as we, as we learn and we're growing up, but parents ever wanting to get close to adult children. You know, sometimes when your children grow up and they move away or something, there's a, there could be a distance there. You try to get close to them, and you want the relationship definitely to go beyond birthday cards and, and things like that. You want it to go deeper, but it's, it's not happening. You're trying. Or maybe it's the other way around, parent, tr uh, child trying to get closer to their parent, uh, young adult wanting to connect with dad and mom. Uh, maybe it's been a, a divorce and things aren't the same with your kids because they're trying to figure out who to go with, you know, who to, who to uh, play favorite to. And really, honestly, parents, if that's the case, you shouldn't be doing that with either kid. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe you want that intimacy. I'm not talking about sexual intimacy here. I'm talking about best friend intimacy in a marriage. You want that and it's not happening. No, neither you nor your wife, you or your husband knows how to get there anymore. You're kind of at this stalemate, and there, there's a little bit of this understanding that this is just the way it's going to be. We're just going to play our roles in there. I mean, if you've been there, that hurts. If you've been there, that's no way to live. And that's not the way that God wants us to live. Most of us know that Scripture teaches Jesus came. Well, I'm going to say most of us know. I've been telling you guys every week, so let's see if most of us know. Jesus came to what? Many things, but primarily he said this. I came to I think I've hit this every week for the last three weeks. I came to seek. Wow. I'm going to have to go. Seeking to save that which was lost. Seeking to save that which was lost. So that may be a new one for roughly all of you. But that's what he came to do. We're lost. We're separated from God. He came to bring us back. Let me ask you something. Do you go to save something? Would you risk your life for someone you really didn't care about? Maybe a stranger that you might love, you might, you might instinctively do that. But what if you found out somebody was in trouble and, and, and somebody was kidnapped? Or, would you go there? I'm going to go in there. I don't, I don't even know him. In fact, I, I do know him. I hate him. Can't stand that person. But let me just risk my life, my family, everything. Probably not. Let the SWAT team deal with it or the FBI. But, I mean, would you go in there and go, stop, Hitler, don't kill yourself. You know, 60-some years ago, I want to save you. Would you do that? I probably, I, I'd be like, give me a gun. I'll help Hitler out. I'll end this. No, you wouldn't. So you'd probably save someone for a greater purpose than just to save them and go, I saved. 
You probably go after someone to save somebody because you want something more. Or you look at them and you go, there's something more for them. They're worth saving. Hey, I, and this is how God did. He didn't just save you to set you in a pile and go, now the uh, pile of saved people is getting bigger. Pile of lost people is getting smaller. So I feel good. How we feel? Angels, we feeling good? Is this the scales tipping? He didn't, if he saved you just to save you, then you'd be in heaven right now. The moment you were saved, you'd beam up there and that'd be it. That'd be the end of it. But he saved you for something else. And this is the cool part. He saved you to get to know you. He saved you for an intimate relationship and he saved you for an assignment. And this is where the great disconnect happens, I think, in churches. It's like we don't know. It's like we didn't get the memo and we don't know what he saved us for. Well, you know what's sad about that? You and I were made, created for relationship. More than that, we were created for intimacy. We were created for community. We weren't created to be alone. In fact, you've heard me say this before, if you've been with me for any amount of time. We were created by community for community. Does that sound familiar? What do you mean by community? Well, God is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Community, three in one. We were created with this togetherness and this unity so that we would know how to be. When we're functioning right and we're everything God called us to be, we need to be in community. We need to not be lone rangers. So there's several things in the Christian life that are stunning our growth, that are causing believers today to not grow, and we just think it's normal. We just think it's automatic, but it isn't. When we finally get this, though, and we allow him to work within us and, and really let him catch us because he's seeking after us. And just stop and let him catch us and really get to know him. There are many words to describe that state of being. But gang, one of them, I mean intimacy, one of them though, and we're going to talk about it now, is maturity. Is maturity. Today, as I said, we're going to talk about grow, but we're not just going to talk about as a, you know, like a physical person would eat and then grow. We're not going to just talk about growth. We're going to talk about maturity. And gang, there's a big difference. There's a big difference. Anybody ever known a full-blown adult that acted like a 12-year-old? Please, haven't you ever seen that? Any of them sitting next to you right now? Or are you just, you're, you're afraid to move? Because you're going, no comment. I, you know, I've seen that recently, <clears throat> 10 minutes ago, seen it. Well, check out this verse. This is what's expected of Christians. So come on, let's leave the, pre this is Hebrews 6 one. Let's leave the preschool finger painting. I love the message, don't you? It's time to leave the preschool finger painting exercises on Jesus, on Christ, and get on with the groundwork of art, the grand work of art. Grow up in Christ. Grow up in Christ. That almost seems like it's a command, doesn't it? Grow up. Hey, what's wrong with you? You're not growing. Now, that's cruel if somebody has something wrong and they can't grow, isn't it? And God wouldn't do that, I promise you. It's not cruel at all if somebody absolutely can grow and they're just not. Then I would say it's the parent, apparently, if that's a word, loving thing to do, to say grow, grow, get on with the, what's expected of you and grow. You know what's the, I guess, exception today? I think the exception is seeing growing, vibrant, mature Christians. I, I, as I, the more I'm in ministry, the more I think, man, that's just, that's frighteningly rare, and it shouldn't be. And the rule seems to be kind of stunted believers. Believers that, that really haven't grown to their full potential. Or got saved and got fired up and kind of grew to a mature little two-year-old, maturity level of, of a toddler and just never went beyond that. That seems to be pretty normal. Pretty normal. Gang, when I was in ninth grade, I was the same height I am now. Mourn for me. So when I was in eighth or ninth grade, that was pretty cool. In fact, I was a BMOC, believe it or not of my school because I thought, you know, going to especially eighth grade, oh, wow, man, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, I've had some back surgery and they removed part of the disc, so I used to be 6'4". So it was just, you know, it was, it was a lot that they removed out of me. So when I'm getting to ninth grade, I'm thinking, this is great and, and it's going to work out. I'm probably, you know, you know how you take your kids now and, and for some reason the doctors look at them when they're two and they seem to know, what's that all about? Can they really predict that? Here's your two-year-old. Based on the size he is now, he's going to be about six or four. I've never really seen that work out. But if that were true, based on that, I should have been, you know, playing in the NBA. But it didn't happen. So in ninth grade, I didn't grow. And I didn't panic because I, I heard about these late growth spurt people. Except it didn't happen in 10th grade either. And in 11th, I was beginning to get nervous. In 12th, I was flat out panicked. You know, because there's not a lot of college growth that goes on. And then, you know, pretty much freshman year in college, I'm going, it, it, the NBA is not going to happen. 
Plus, I couldn't play basketball, so that was another big, big reason I knew the NBA. But was that all genetics? Maybe, and I'm married to a doctor, so I could be really making a fool out of myself on this one, but I don't think so, because there was something else that was real big on me. And I know there's some, uh, some kids who might agree with this here. We all got really young ones here, but let's see if you guys will be honest. You guys ready? You like vegetables? Man after my own heart. Flat out no on that guy. How, you like vegetables? You do? Okay, we're not talking. You're something weird. <laughs> Sounds strange. You like, you like vegetables? Turbo. You do? Okay, what's wrong with you? What, what, what? All right. Do we have a normal kid here? Do we? Raise your hand if you are under 13. Raise your hand if you are under 13. Raise your hand. And you don't like vegetables. Keep your hand up. Yes, welcome to normalcy. Yes, you, you're, you guys are with me. I didn't like them. There's two vegetables that freaked me out, literally freaked me out, caused me to go into cardiac arrest as a kid. One of them is overcooked asparagus. Thank you. I mean, you don't, you're not hungry now, right? It's great when it's snappy and ranch, right? Smothered in ranch because you're basically eating ranch. There's no, there's only, but when you cook asparagus, it begins to fall apart and become almost like soupy and mushy. If you want to see me just, you don't want to see that. You don't want to see me barf, but that, that'll do it. The other one is overcooked, really, really, really cooked cauliflower. Those two things, if, I mean, if I come over to your house or something, please don't serve that as a joke or anything because it's not even funny. So my parents tried everything. They tried timeout. They tried making me stand during dinner. They tried giving my brother and sister desserts and everything that I love right in front of me. If only I would eat my asparagus or cauliflower, but I wouldn't do it. Finally, they started setting the timer on me. And the timer, remember the timers you kind of turn, you know, those little, the little white timer, right? they're pretty standard in most houses. And then when that thing went off, I would, I would take off running because I knew the belt was coming off. And I, I mean, they actually spanked me, which is child abuse, so I'm, I'm going to press charges. I'm just trying to get, that's, I'm going to see what I can get out of that. But so it's not child abuse. So I remember running up the stairs and my dad grabbing me by the ankle when I'm coming back down the stairs and sitting me there and going, you are going to eat this. And I, I'm telling you, school nights or whatever, eight, nine years old, two in the morning. I'm not going to eat it. I'm not. And I thought, no big deal because, you know, the only guy I know that eats stuff like that on TV that I trust is Popeye. He eats spinach. And all that's gotten him is some temporary, you know, boost of power. I, I was young enough to notice that. Look, he gets strong, but it lasts, what, 30 seconds? I'd rather be this other big guy over here who doesn't eat spinach. He's always strong. Who is that? Brutus? or what? So, Yeah, I would rather be that. And some freakish forearms. I, I don't really want that. He had some big old forearms. He was really a little guy. So I was convinced that vegetables don't really do that. And that's a scam until I got in ninth, 10th, 11th grade. Then I realized Oh no, I will, I'll repent, I'll go back, I'll eat my asparagus, I'll eat my broccoli, I'll eat all that and it'll help me. So I'm thinking maybe, maybe they do. Maybe, would, would you say that good eating helps with your best potential and growth? Is that, is that going too far, is that okay? So that's okay. I haven't gone over the edge there. So if you eat good and you eat healthy and you eat well and you eat your vegetables, you'll probably realize your full potential. If you don't, you may not, is what I'm saying. So you go to a place like, in Christianity, like Charlotte, careful Rob, you go to a place like Charlotte and you look around and you meet a lot of believers and you realize, okay, this is a religious town. This is definitely a religious town. And it seems like everybody I meet almost, nine out of 10 people are using this label called Christian. And they're saying, I'm a Christian. Are you a Christian? Sure, I am. Isn't everybody? Is anybody not a Christian? I mean, you almost don't want to say it. You go to church? Yep. You know, something like 45, 50%, which is incredibly high for our day and age right now, go to church in this area. I mean, I'm from Southern California, and it's probably 10, maybe 10%, maybe. And if you go, I mean, it's this side of the fence and that side of the fence. I mean, I think the fence, you can park an RV on the fence in Charlotte. It's huge. The fence has got a lot of room. A lot of people live on the fence. And so you come here, and it's almost like you're in the land of Oz. It's like you're in the land of Oz, where spiritual munchkins are everywhere. And, and, and regular-sized Gro spiritually grown people are no. I know I got to be careful about what I say here, <clears throat> but I looked up, in case you were ever wondering, how many? How, <laughs> what's, the, what's the PC way to say this, Pastor Rob? When have you ever cared about PC? Never. Okay, so I don't care. Here it is. 
what's the ratio of people that are, say, under four feet tall? Uh, I don't know what the correct term is, dwarfism or, or, or what is the term? To the right, what is it? Little people. Little people. Okay, so what's the, uh, the ratio of little people to people, you know, guys that are 5'9", five, 5'10", five, girls that are 5'6". What, what is the ratio? Anybody know? Time's up. One in 40,000. Did you know that? One in 40,000 people will be born with this. And then you come to a place, literally, like Charlotte, and I, I don't want to say it's exactly that ratio, but it's close. It almost seems like it's turned upside down. Spiritually speaking, it's almost like one in 40,000 people are really giants of the faith. When you ask somebody, who do you look to? Who's your inspiration in faith? You know, more people will tell you about a public figure like Billy Graham or maybe a Mother Teresa than they'll tell you about a friend. I mean, maybe some of you have done it. Well, who's your inspiration? I love to follow Billy Graham. Or they'll tell you about somebody they listen to on a podcast or, or TV, something like that. Oh, I listen to Andy Stan. I listen to his dad, Charles Stanley. I listen to Pastor so-and-so. But they won't tell you about, you know what, my... Some of you may be nodding because you have that kind of friend. I think that's great if you do. But nine times out of ten, they won't tell you, you know what, my neighbor down the street. Yeah, he changed my life. It's that guy. I see Jesus. He was Jesus to me. She was Jesus to me. I could see that. They... They're the perfect representation of what I read in the scriptures. And I want you to think for a moment. Can you name someone like that? Can you name two people like that? Besides Nicole, can anybody else name? (laughs) I'm not not seeing a lot of hands. And by the way, some of you that I am seeing the hands, I know who you're probably talking about. I know some of the friends you've got, and they are stellar. But that wasn't a lot. There's a couple hundred people where, where that's three or four hands. Three or four hands? I want to change that today. In fact, by the end of our time today, I want to put you on a track or tell you absolutely what you can know to where people out there are going to point to you guys. They're going to point to the people that impact and they say, you know what changed my life? I've been watching Sadie. I've been watching her live her life. That's the way I want to live my life. I've been watching Mark, the way he lives. I want to live my life like that. I've been watching Kitty. I've been watching Michelle. I want to live my life like that. What about Billy Graham? He's great. I don't really know him, though. I don't know him personally. So I'm thinking the, half the people at Impact, most of the people at Impact, all the people at Impact are my influence. Now, what would happen if a church like that was planted in Charlotte? What would happen? Not just the pastors, but everybody. Yeah, what would happen? Not just Jesus, but all his 12 disciples. I mean, that makes kind of a difference. So listen, genetically... Real dwarfism is genetic, so they don't, they don't, there's nothing they can do about it. Spiritually speaking, if you're born again, you have the genes to grow normal, to actually grow into a spiritual giant. They're there. Nobody can say, well, I can't, I'm, I got ripped off. No, you didn't. You have the same growth potential because you were born again. Now the Holy Spirit lives in you, and you have better potential. You, you didn't have any potential before to grow. You had none. Now you have it. So nobody can say, well, I didn't eat, but you can say something. You can be like me as a little kid. You can say, well, I'm not going to do the things that help me grow. I don't like them. I don't want to do them. But I don't get it. You said it's there. It's in our genes. Why doesn't it just happen? Because you don't eat your vegetables. Why doesn't it just happen? Because you don't do the things that the Lord said, hey, let's partner up and do these things together and watch you grow more like my son. You say, well, I don't want to do those, but I sure like being in your family. Well, then you'll get there, hopefully, if you really know by the skin of your teeth, but you won't become more like him. You won't. I want that to change. I don't, I don't want people to point to impact. There's nearly a thousand churches in Charlotte and the surrounding area. I don't want people to go, where do you go to church? I go to Impact Church. It's the, the lollipop land, the lollipop land. Remember those little, I don't want people going to everybody's, you know, four, <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but everybody. It's four feet tall, nobody's mature, nobody's, I mean, they play church, they sing, they go home. Now, I want it to be different. That's why we're a launch right now. We're waiting. We're waiting for this DNA to be set and everything to be in there. So, I'm going to keep using that little uh, um, Oz thing. I think it'll help us remember it. Everywhere you look around here, there are, and I don't want this to become a, a, an indictment, so let me take a different approach here. I've already made it plain. There, there's too much of a, of a spiritual stunted growth here. Here's my hope today. This morning I want to show three ways to get back to the growth track with Jesus. I'm going to give you three simple ways. Three heel clicks, you know, with the ruby red slippers. How's that for getting you in there? There's no place like home. We're going to get you back. 
Now, we could probably just let it be if it weren't for the fact that the growth of the believer is expected. Growth for the Christ follower should be the norm. Check out Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. You can write it down. Let me read it for you. Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Paul, I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. He's saying, I have a lot more to say about this. Now, he's been teaching deep theological truths, but it's almost as though he's teaching the people and he's getting a lot of deer in the headlights. And Paul's going along teaching and he's looking around going, okay, I've been watching you guys for a while and I've been hearing as you write back, as I write you letters, there's a lot more I want to say here, but it's hard to get it across to you since you've picked up this bad habit of not listening. Now, I'm not saying you guys aren't listening. You might be listening. You might be able to regurgitate, but he's talking about something different. He said, by this time, you ought to be teachers. You guys have been with me long enough that you ought to be leading small groups. You ought to be leading life groups. You ought to be leading ministries, not even necessarily. We're not just raising up people to 400 volunteers. I'm hoping that we're raising up leaders for years to come. Here. And you ought to be leading, teaching yourselves. Yet, here I find you need someone to sit down with you and go over the basics on God. Again, starting from square one, baby's milk. When he should have been on solid food a long time ago. Milk is for beginners, inexperienced in God's ways. Solid food is for the mature who have some practice in telling right from wrong. Two words I want you to think about in that scripture there. <clears throat> you ought. You ought. Probably the, two, the only two words in there that you didn't think about. Ought is used according to the definition that I looked up on Webster's is to indicate a desirable or expected state. He ought to be able to take the initiative. I love that word expected. So you know what Paul's saying here? I want to keep on teaching and I was planning on it. But what I expected, in fact, I'm kind of blown away because what should have been normal, what should have just been almost automatic and what you should have just flowed into because of what Jesus did for you, he loved you first, you ought to love him back. Somehow something misfired. It's not happening. So let me back up. Really, we're going to take the bottle back out and start with the milk. And you guys ought to be cooking up, grilling out steaks. What happened spiritually? Now pay attention because this is huge. Thank goodness, gang, spiritual growth is not like physical growth. We can and should Keep becoming more like Christ until we see him face to face. Then, by the way, guess what? It gets better. Look at what Paul again says to a dysfunctional church in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, for now we see in a mirror. This life that we live right now and trying to be like God, is, as much as we try, it's a little dim and a little foggy and a little misty. But then, what is then? When you either die or go home to be with the Lord or he comes back and takes us to be with him. When we see him face to face, now I know in part but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. What's that saying? Everything's going to clear up. Your maturity is going to shoot up. You're going to know a lot of things about Jesus, and you're going to know intimacy with him like he knows with you. All right, now I need to stop, because right here, this happens a lot in churches, and I've been in ministry over 20 years, and people right here will think, oh, I, it's going to happen anyway in heaven when I see Jesus face to face? <laughs> I didn't really know that. Thanks for clearing that up, Pastor. So it's automatic. I'm in party. I can just do whatever I want because when I get there, I'll be mature, right? Sort of. Sort of. One thing I'm pretty sure I will never be, like I told you before, is a vegetarian. But a couple will, um, couple will send me into full shutdown mode, like I said, the asparagus and the cauliflower. I like, them, I like them fine, raw, but uh, not cooked like this. And Listen, this defiance surfaced pretty early on in my life. Um, now let me do this. Let me go to this. The difference between maturity and growth. Let me ask you this. Is it possible to be wise and knowledgeable, of strong character, mature, and physically five feet tall as a man? I hope nobody's five feet tall in here today. Is it possible? It's a simple question. Yes, let me ask you another one. I'm average height. Some of you may say that's being generous, Pastor Rob, you're not of average. No, I'm, I'm average height, I checked. It may have gone up an inch or so, but I'm average height 20 years ago, at least. <laughs> I can tell you that men of average height are by far the wisest, most mature of men out there. No, listen, you can be short and mature, and you can be the world's tallest person and immature has nothing to do with it. So physical growth and emotional spiritual maturity are not really connected. We see a similar principle inside the realm of spiritual development as there are millions of Christians on the fast track 
to grow who will at the same time never mature. Now, I wonder what would have happened if Dorothy, now we're going to assume for a minute that this is true, not just a uh, fantasy thing, but what if Dorothy would have said, because there's going to be a lot of similarities in our little message today. What if she would have said, who was the nice witch? Wow, that's surprising. You answered that one quick, but nothing's... Glinda, we know that. More, more spiritual, more trivia about the Wizard of Oz. I had to look that up, and I don't know if I put it in there. Was it Glenda? Glinda? Now, okay. Glenda, Glinda, whatever. Something like that. Well, what would have happened? I think, if I have this right, I hope I don't have this wrong, that Glinda, Glenda told Dorothy that you need to find the ruby red. You need to use these ruby reds. You have to have them. Is that correct? It is now. For our purposes, it's correct. You have to have the ruby red slippers. And what happens at the end with the ruby red slippers? You have to, don't act like you've never seen the Wizard of Oz. What happens at the end of it? You have to click them together three times and say, it's no place like home three times. So what if she said, you know what? I don't like red. Red's not a good color for me. I like blue. I want Elvis's blue suede shoes. Those are way better. They look better with me. They must be magic. Look how Elvis moved. I'm going to use those. I'm going to click those together three times, and that's going to be what I do. Well, believe it or not, Christians do this. They say, I don't like this. This is not really what I want to do, but I would like to do this as a better road. So let me give you, before we go any further, and I backed up just a moment ago because I don't want to miss these. I wasn't planning on doing this. Let's do it anyway. Here's three things that are going to get your growth track off track. Off track. These aren't the three things I was going to give you. I'm going to give these first because we're not going to really get anywhere without this. These are sort of the three false clicks that we can go through. Let me kind of set this up before I do that. I want you to write this down. If you've got a pen, write this down. Write this on your connection card. or Actually, you've got to turn that in, so just write this down. There's two R's that people get mixed up. Jesus didn't come to bring one of them. Jesus did come to bring the other. It's amazing to me how powerful and how strong religion is across the globe. Except that Jesus never came to bring religion. There's nothing in, especially, the, there's nothing in the New Testament about Jesus setting up a religion and a way of doing ritual. He didn't come to bring that at all. He came to bring relationship. So here's what I want you to write down. Not that, this. Religion is a formula. If you want to know the difference, religion is a formula that allows us to treat God respectfully. So that's not bad, right? Religion is a formula that allows us to treat God respectfully, but not intimately. Do you see the difference? I mean, I'm str- I struggle with this sometimes. It re- allows us, it's even good because God is a holy, reverent God. We should treat him respectfully. We should treat him reverently, all these R words. But what he's after with us is intimacy. And religion will never get you there. Who had religion in the New Testament? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they had religion, way more religion than others. But they had no intimacy whatsoever with the Savior. None. Religion couldn't even get them close to Jesus. In fact, if you ever want to see a story where the tension is so high in that, look at John chapter 3 and Nicodemus and Jesus reacting with each other, interacting with each other. Nicodemus was incredibly religious, but he knew something was missing, and he couldn't connect with Jesus, but he wanted to. And you see Jesus talking to this incredibly smart guy like he's a three-year-old and telling him, you need to be like a baby. You need to be born again. You need to start over. You need to keep it simple. You're making it too complex. And he's saying, I just want to know you, Nicodemus. You're trying to use all this ceremony, all this ritual, and all this religion. It's keeping you from me. It's blocking the way. I just want to know you. So sometimes we get, and it, we get caught up in these formulas. If you grew up Baptist, I'm not picking up on, ba- picking on Baptist, but look at this. Sometimes Baptists will say, and I've done this, and I try to be very, very careful about this because I want you to know that, listen, raising your hand doesn't save you. Walking down an aisle doesn't save you. Even repeating after somebody else words about, I'm a sinner, come out, that doesn't save you. Sometimes Baptists will have a formula where, forgive me for my sins, pray this, and You'll be fine, but then you'll see so many people that kind of go back to their old lifestyle and they get right back into the same thing and there's no changes. So they, what they do, they come back to church and they say, forgive me again, I'll never do it again and I repent and come into my life. What's going on there? What's going on? Well, it's been reduced to a formula for them, a ritual. In that sense, even a religious thing with them. 
So God gets out his giant eraser every time that you say, please forgive me, God, and he erases your sins and forgets them, right? Right? And then you go on, right? Some of you are scared. Is he setting me up? Is this a real? I was setting you up. It's wrong. No, no, that's not wrong, Pastor Rob. Jesus forgets our sins and, and puts them as far away as the east is from the west and all that stuff. But it actually doesn't say that. We'll talk about that another time. You're going to camp on that? you going to let me go? Let me hit it real quick, because I think there's zero chance that you guys... That's actually found in Hebrews. The verse you're thinking of is found in Hebrews. Hebrews 8, 12. It's found in several places, but listen to this. I will, this is Paul writing again to the Hebrew Christians, I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Yeah, that's what I said, Pastor. He forgets our sins. Well, I didn't read forgets in there. I didn't see that in there. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Okay, well, you know, you're splitting hairs. What's the difference? Am I? Some people read that and believe that he just erases our sin from his memory, and, you know, if the angels bring it up, he says, shh, don't remind him of that. He forgot. He has no ability. He can't remember that. He'll probably get mad if you bring it up, because that's the way it works up here. God's like, huh, what did you say? Rob never did that. Get behind me, Satan. You know, you get, I'm trying to forget that, and you're trying to remind me of that. Well, there's a difference, gang, between not remembering and forgetting. Do you hear it in there, or do I need to tell you what it is? There's a big difference. Hebrews 8, 12 doesn't say God forgets. It says he will not remember. Put it another way, God's saying, this is, I try to think about how to get this, he won't bring them up anymore. Is that worth anything to you? He's almighty, omniscient, all-knowing God. Of course he has not lost, he didn't go ADD and go, I got to punish Rob, but I cannot remember for the life of me. I got seven billion people. I forgot what he did. That's not going on. But he chooses not to remember them. In other words, I love this. Listen, if a, if a horrible sin happens in a marriage, let's say that one of the toughest thing in a marriage you get over, let's say adultery happens, but there's forgiveness and there's brokenness, and the, and the husband and wife get back together and they're going to make it. One of the things that I counsel that better happen is you better forgive and forget, but what I'm really saying is don't use this. You'll never make it, right? Don't use this. Don't keep bringing this up. I mean, next time, you know, he does something and he's loved you, he's been a great husband, a hundred times better than he's ever been, and he's really changed, and God's gotten a hold of him, maybe even got saved, and, you know, something happens, and five years later, you're going, well, I knew this would happen. Remember the time you, and it just breaks everything down, and, and it kind of just reduces the relationship back in your back to square. That's what God will never do. Isn't that worth something? That's what God will never do again. He's not going to throw anything in your face that you ask for forgiveness for. I think that's worth the world. There's so many things that I wish I could forget. See, that's the difference between ritual. I can't make that happen. And relationship. A relationship that's intimate and strong means I'm not going to hold that. I love you. Warts and all. Quirks and all. We're going to make it through this. So, you think, we think, I think in our society, that religious people and people that know the most facts about this book got to be the mature ones, right? We look at it and we go, man, I was just with this guy. He, I, he knows, he's got some books, he's got the whole book of James memorized. He can say it from heart. You should hear his scripture memory. You should, when you get in theological discussions, I don't even want to talk because he's so smart. He makes me, anybody ever been around a person like that? Okay. And you automatically think, well, they must be a strong Christian. They must be powerful in their faith. But not always. Often not, actually. So we think, we misthink, like they did in Jesus' day, that all the religious people are the grown-ups, are the spiritually mature ones. The answer, most of the time, a lot of the time, is no. That's why we have so many religious people in the world and so few mature-believing Christ followers in the world. Gang, this area, this G-grow, is one of the main reasons why we have munchkin Christians instead of vibrant, growing Christians as the norm. Most people would love to grow to be more like Christ, but our approach is all wrong. Even our idea of what a grown-up is, a mature Christian looks like, is all messed up. Take a look at this. Eric, do you like your Sunday school class? Do I like my Sunday school class? Absolutely. I feel like it's a perfect fit for who I am and where I'm at with God. I feel like I can really excel in this group. I tried other classes at church, but I don't know, they just weren't really for me. It's, it's hard to get out of bed and drive all the way down to church if you're not getting anything out of the class in the first place. 
But this one, it just really gels with my personal learning style. I feel like Mrs. Evans gets it, you know? She really understands how to teach to me. And I think she's pretty impressed with my Bible knowledge, too. You can tell me who built the ark. Nope, nope. Eric? Noah? Was it Noah? Yes, it was Noah. <laughs> so I knew it. <laughs> Where were you guys at? <laughs> I know what people say, but no, it's not just the snacks and the songs that make it a better Sunday school class. I just, I, I feel like I really connect with the other students here, too. So who do you like better, Spider-Man or Batman? Spider-Man. Yes. <laughs> I just got the new Spider-Man shoes the other day. They're really fast. And Mrs. Evans, she just makes the word come alive with all those big pictures and take-home papers, and yeah, she just really brings it down to my level. Jesus! It was Jesus. Jesus said that. <laughs> yes! Oh, yeah. Of course Sunday school is important. I, as long as it's not too difficult and you feel comfortable in it. I mean, I've been in Mrs. Evans' Sunday school class 15 years now. I'm not going anywhere. Yo, teach! I get another one of these? All right, so let's clear up some of these misnomers quickly. We don't have to spend a lot of time on them, but if you're thinking any one of these false blue suede shoe heel click things here, you're not going to go on to growth and maturity. Some of the silly things he was thinking, only put in a way that makes sense and looks logical. Here's the first one. The first meaningless heel click is knowledge equals maturity. And a lot of people think that. A lot of people call themselves Christians. The whole deal of spiritual maturity belongs to the most knowledgeable. Never mind how you live. Never mind how you treat others or even your own family. You must be mature because you know a lot and you're pretty good at the game of Bible trivia pursuit. Knowledge by itself, gang, and look up here, listen to this, it's so important. I don't really know why we get caught in this trap, but knowledge by itself is useless. Utterly useless. Might be good, like I said, for a trivial pursuit, but I don't know where you can go, for, go with that. And notice I didn't say knowledge is of little use. I said knowledge by itself is of little use. Knowing God's word is huge. And it's not, it's not negotiable, really. It's expected that you know God's word. But it's also expected, gang, that you put it into use, that you put it into practice. So I'm going to give you four great friends, four great benefits if you take the knowledge you have and you put it into practice. Here's what's going to happen. Write these down. Think of these. We're still on the Oz thing. So this is the lion, the scarecrow, the tin man, and Toto. They didn't have a fourth one. So here it is. Strengthen your faith. I want you to remember these, so I'm going to give you these characters. That would be courage. So that would be who? The lion. Once you got his courage. First of all, if you apply the knowledge you have, it's going to strengthen your faith. You're going to start to realize this isn't the end of the world. I'm not trapped. I'm not hopeless. My God is bigger. How do you know that? Because you're getting to know your God. It'll strengthen your faith. Let me give you scripture for each of these. Acts 20, 32. And now I entrust you to God and his care and to his wonderful words that are able to build your faith and give you all the inheritance of those who are set apart for himself. Next thing it'll do, and this is the scarecrow after he got wisdom, It'll guide your decisions. It'll guide your decisions. Not just knowing stuff, but applying. It'll guide, knowing God's word in your heart and applying it. Your word, Psalms 119.105 says, is a lamp to my feet and a light unto my path. Next, it'll enhance your life. I didn't know where to stick Toto, so there he is. Everybody knows dog's man's best friend, so here he is, Toto. Here's the Toto thing. Do not let this book of the law, Joshua 1.8, depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you might be careful to do everything that's written in it, then you will be prosperous and successful. I know sometimes you hear me preach a lot about sort of the health, wealth, prosperity movement, but again, God's not against you succeeding. I'm not saying that. I'm never saying that. He's not against you even having glory come to you as long as you reflect it back to him. He's not against that. That's not the recipe of God. But here it says, if you obey my word and you live like that, you have more of a chance. It's a principle of being successful and prosperous. And finally, it'll change your heart. That's obviously the tin man. He had a heart issue. 
For the word of God is full of living power. It's sharper than the sharpest knife, cutting deep into the innermost thoughts and desires. It exposes us for what we really are. So it'll help you with heart change. So what's the deal, Pastor? You're not saying that knowledge is bad, but you're not really saying that knowledge is good, so what is it? I mean, you're, you seem to be saying there's something about it that's not good. I am. What isn't good about it is a singular, exclusive, legalistic approach to knowledge that leaves the character and the heart and the integrity of the individual utterly unaffected. And believe it or not, you have these Pharisees who, did you know that some of them had the Torah? Pentateuch, Torah, first five books of the Bible, including 50 chapter Genesis, memorized. That's knowing the word of God, isn't it? I wish I knew the word of God that well. And now I'm not going to brag, but let me say this, but I think I know it better. Oh, you are bragging. No, I'm not. I don't have Genesis memorized, but I think I know it better than the Pharisees did. Because they just had it memorized. I mean, they could sit there or stand there like a robot and spew it out and get it out, but they didn't live it at all. No heart change whatsoever. How could you have the Word of God in your mind and not change? Because you've got to transfer it, the average 18 inches to your heart. You've got to. Without that change, it's utterly useless by itself. So as we pursue knowledge in the right way, several wonderful things ought to happen to us as a direct result. But that's only if we purpose or pursue God alone, or, pr or pursue God alone in our quiet time and in our prayer, and then also pursue God in community. Then there are several benefits that come with that. <clears throat> All of these are marks of maturity. But gang, the opposite of this is just another myth. Here's the second myth. Maturity is a solo act. Maturity is a solo act. Here's the deal with Han Solo. The more you get to know God, the more you realize that he made us and shaped us for community. All of us together, there's several scriptures that show this form one body, and Paul, again, actually uses the illustration of a human body, and he says, God put us together so intricately, but you ever notice how the human body doesn't function well when you start tearing parts off of it? You tear both your ears off, the hearing's not going to work. You take your eyes out, the seeing's not going to work. Every single part is equally important. Some of them aren't as impressive as others, some of them, you know, nobody wants to be stinky feet, probably, but you don't get anywhere without your feet. You have to have your feet to walk, right? Every part is integral. Every part is necessary. And yet, what we do as Christians today who want to grow, supposedly, is we say, I'm saved now. I'm going to go this alone. I'm going to do this by myself. I'm going to watch Charles Stanley on TV. I'm going to read my Bible and all, but I'm not, a, not going to be in community. Well, then, gang, you are not going to grow. You might think, I'm pretty mature, I know a lot. Again, that's just knowledge. You're not mature, you can't be. If you think you're mature and you're never in community, then you're calling God a liar. He says it can't be done. What's the biggest living thing on the planet? Are we back to trivial pursuit? Okay, I'm good, what, what is it? What's the biggest thing? What is it? Algae. Wow, no, that's not it. Um, it's the redwood trees. California. Oh, like, yeah, yeah, well, I knew that. It was, you said algae. You did not know that. So it's the giant redwood trees that you could actually drive a car through. I'm just picking on you. Obviously, I'm picking on you, Gary. But you know the redwood trees' roots only go down, like, this far? Maybe at the most three feet? How many have ever been out to see those huge things? They're, like, 300 feet tall. They're wide enough. Some of them that have they've toppled over, they've, you know, or died, they've hollowed out, and you can drive a car. It's so wide. It takes, like, 10 20 people to circumference and get around. They're huge, biggest living thing on the planet. Their roots only go down like that far. So how does something live that long and grow to giant status, the biggest giant status on the planet, when they're not even really deeply rooted? There's got to be something. They do. They do. They go out hundreds and hundreds of feet. And they connect with the other redwood roots. And they tie in and they intertwine with them. And so all the redwoods are connected together. You know how hard it would be to knock down a redwood tree? How many you got to knock down? So when the worst storms that have hit for hundreds and hundreds of years, some of those things are a thousand years old, have not been able to knock those trees down because they can't. All the other ones are holding them up. You may think that you're slick enough and you're mature enough and you can go it alone, but you can't. I sound like Nemo, don't I? 
you may think you can do these things, but you just can't. And that's what God is saying. All right, what's the next fallacy in there? That application isn't important. That application isn't important. But here's what scripture says in James 2.26. As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds, faith without works is dead. Man, this is really delicate. Martin Luther, the Reformation, he didn't even want to include James in the Bible because this scared him so much. Because what was the Reformation? I'm coming down, coming down the aisle really far. Is it going to blow, Tom? <laughs> Pretty good. What, what's it about? What was this big thing? You can't work your way. You can't buy your way. Indulgences, all that stuff. It's not about this. It's about relationship. It's about faith. And so he comes to James and it freaked him out. It freaked Martin Luther out. He didn't want to include James or the book of Revelation in the Bible. He finally came around on that. Because you read James and it talks about how important works are. And if you're Martin Luther, you're going, this is going to ruin everything. Let's get rid of this book. I don't know. I don't think. But James wrote it. But listen, guys, it's not saying that you get to God by works. It's saying that if your faith is real, it's just going to produce works. If it's real, it's just automatic. If it's in your heart, it's going to be the outflow. If it's not in your heart, you can have all the knowledge in the world, but the works are not going to be there. It's going to be forced. You can do a few things, and then it just stops. You don't have the power. You don't have the longing to do it. So works are important. Application's important. What we read, what we learn about every week in this book is utterly useless if you go home and you don't do it. If you go home and you don't do it. That's what the Pharisees did. They learned it, but they never applied it at all. I'm going to share a couple more scriptures. I've got to move faster. We're going long. Imagine that a little bit today. Christ is in you. This is Colossians 1.26. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it to you. Christ is in you, so therefore you can look forward to sharing in God's glory. It's that simple. That's the substance of our message. This is from the message paraphrase. We preach Christ, warning people not to add to the message. We teach in a spirit of profound common sense so that we can bring each person to maturity. To be mature is to be basic. It's Christ. No more, no less. That's what I'm working so hard. It's Paul talking at day, in, day after day, day and night, year after year, doing my best with the energy God so generously gives me. What? But Paul, you're, you have all these complicated books. That you but he says, yeah, but you know what it really boils down to? I'm just trying to get you to trust him. I'm, just try, I'm really trying to get you to be more like a little kid and say, I love you. God, I'll follow you and I'll learn from my heart and I'll, whatever you ask me to do, whatever, I'll know it's best. And I'm going to give this to you a couple times as we close out here. But I'm going to tell you right now, and you're going to feel a little bad. You may throw eggs if you had them. This whole sermon can be boiled down to one thing. Why didn't you just give us the one thing, Pastor? Why do we go there? Because this whole thing can be boiled down to this. I didn't learn this probably till this past year. I mean, I think I knew it in my heart, but I couldn't put it in words. Now, I believe this with all my heart. I know this is true. Growth and maturity boils down to one simple thing. You know what God's after as he grows you? He's after your trust. Now, I want you to think about this. Who are the most mature, strong, vibrant believers that you know? What's the common thing about them? Just think about this. Don't they seem to trust God with an almost maddening faith? Don't they just seem to be all out in their life and so free and I trust God's in control and, I, and you look at their, and it's not, they're not just saying it. They believe it. That's boiling everything down to what he's after in you. So there's not like five steps? Sure there can be if they're helpful. I'll give you 10 if it makes it better. But ultimately, I'm after one thing now. I realize this. God, help me to help the people of impact trust you like little children. It's impossible to see the kingdom of God unless you become like a little child. Did you know that? Some of you are so intellectual, so heavenly minded, have no earthly good. Meanwhile, sometimes you see a seven-year-old that comes to know the Lord and they're just rejoicing and praising. I watched some of the kids when they were worshiping up here and I look at them and go, they get it. They get it more than most adults get it. Why? Because they just love him. They just love him. They just trust him. That's it. The more you love, believe, and trust in the Savior. Now, I will give you things, and, and I want to seem contradictory. I'm going to give you things, but I'm going to give you things to help you love him more and trust him more. 
So you go, but that seems mechanical. Not when you see this. Not when you really see what I'm, what I'm driving at here. I'm going to give you the final things here, and these really are the, the ruby slipper clicks here. How can I learn to trust God more? One with these. One thing is spend quality time with Jesus. Oh, I knew you were going to say that, Pastor Rob. You say that all the time. But I mean it. Actually, all, I don't say it all the time. What I say all the time is spend time with Jesus, don't I? But I, I just added that word quality. That's a big debate. Is it just quantity or quality? It's, it's quality, not just quantity. Spend quality time with the Lord. Spend quality time with Jesus. And I'm going to give you an A and a B under this. Listen first. That's read your Bible. That's how you listen to God, primarily. If you're not reading your Bible, you're not hearing what he has to say, period. So you've got to spend time in the Word. And talk second. That's what? Pray. Listen and pray. But why did I say quality time? Well, because right here, this is kind of quality time because I'm teaching a message. And if you go have your quiet time in a restaurant, that's kind of time with Jesus. But the waitress is talking, people are talking around you, cups are clinking, everything. Quality time is when all you can hear is his voice. What did Jesus do when he, and he's God, but what did he do when he withdrew to pray? I just gave some of it away. He withdrew to pray to a quiet place, away from the disciples, by himself, with his Father. Quality time is a place, it's not a place where you can just be with the Father. No distractions, that's quality. It might freak you out at first. I, you know, when I want to spend a quality date with Michelle, she likes when we're alone. We go on walks in my neighborhood. In my neighborhood, you're more likely to see a coyote than a human. We're out there. So when I'm walking with Michelle, it's quality time. We're going to have quality time together. Now, I could take her on a date to... Hickory Tavern. How many of you have ever been to Hickory Tavern? Is it, is that, okay. You're not going to get two words in. It's going to be you, your wife, and 47 sports programs, right? On large screen TVs and everything going on, and a group of guys have had too much to drink, cheering for different teams over in the bar section. That's, I can talk with Michelle at Hickory Tavern, but it's not going to be really quality time, right? And it amazes me because I did this too, but when we're dating, why do we take girls to the movies? So you're looking with withdrawal, you're looking at quiet, a place where well, you can be quiet at the movies, you're not even allowed to talk or text there, right? But it's not quality, because you're sitting there not relating at all, being quiet. So it's not just about being quiet, it's about being in a place away from everything else where it's just you and them, and really getting to know them. So I'm not just saying read your Bible and pray. I'm saying doing it in an environment where it's just you and God. Man, try it. See if it doesn't make a difference in your relationship. The next thing is obey Jesus. Obey Jesus. Do what he tells you to do. Well, I don't know if I really agree with this one. I like this part of the Bible right here. I don't really like this section here, so I'm not. All of it. All of it. I mean, right now in our culture, there are certain things that God's word is telling us to do that people don't like. I get it. I know. This is a huge, roaring debate on homosexuality. Is it a sin? Is it not? Should we debate this? Should Christians be in this forum? Should evangelicals say this? Forget all that, gang. Just forget it. What does God say? What does God say? There's roaring debates on, you know, in the church there's still, there's always been a debate on, you know, where, where should a woman, woman teach? Should a man teach? Where's the different place? Forget the debate. It's actually written here. So you go, I don't, I don't, the way I read it, I don't know if I like that. Well, God's not asking your opinion on how to run the universe. He's not. That's just the way it is. You want to get to know him intimately? Trust him enough to spend quality time. Then trust him enough to when he says to do something that it's actually best. That it's actually best. And then finally, and this one, I know it's going to be awkward and seem a little weird, but if you do the first two, this one will just flow. Mimic Jesus. Mimic Jesus. What did Jesus do? Not WWJD, but WWMFD. What would my father do? That's what Jesus did. How do I know that? John 14, 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Because Philip said to him, well, show us the Father. And he said, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What was Jesus doing? He was imitating his Father. He was trying to bring glory to his Father. He said, if you see me, you've already seen God. We're the same. Can people say that when they see you, they're seeing Jesus? You go, no, not exactly. Well, don't give up because it actually can be that way. I think these are pretty simple steps, don't you? Pretty simple heel clicks. 
They're not magic. They really aren't. They're principles. Think of them as guardrails. They'll keep you on the path to what Jesus is after, which is just an intimate relationship with you. That's the bottom line, again, of this whole message. The most mature believers are those who trust God the most. Simple. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this week. Thank you for how you've worked in my own life, Lord, and just trying to drive this point home, Lord. And God, it is a struggle. It's not the way that we think, Lord. And even as I, I look at it, I struggled with it, you know, this week. Struggle with it even now, God, and thinking how messed up we are in the way that we approach you and the way that we come before your throne. How privileged we should realize that we really are. We don't have to make an appointment with you, God. We don't have to earn the right for one minute of conversation with you. You're there all the time. We can come into your throne room, stand before you through the blood of Christ, and just talk. Help us to be in awe, Lord, of the fact that you, the mighty God of all the universe, want to have an intimate relationship with us. Unbelievably. That right there ought to cause each and every one of us to serve you all the days of our life, Lord. God, help us to view it right. Help us to not just be cerebral believers, but to be heartfelt believers. Open the eyes and the ears this entire week coming up, Lord, to apply what we've learned, that we may hear and see with our hearts and not just our mind. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us. See you next week.